This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello and welcome to episode 223 of What Most People Think. And yes, the clocks went back and it's my 46th consecutive year of being surprised a thing that's happened every year. Do we ever get past this where you just, oh, it's got dark early. Well, you know, that would be a natural consequence of the clocks going back. And on Sunday night, I went to bed at 7pm and that was earlier than my seven-year-old son. I've never seen that look that he gave me as I went up those stairs. It was kind of like... I just said to him, you're the man of the house now. I thought I'd put it on him, see how he copes, okay? I'm going to be asleep. You need to protect the property <laughs> and stand up for the Norcott name. And this is what most people think. It's a, uh, it's a podcast that generally comes at politics and topical things from a slightly different social and political angle than the majority of the comedy scene. And today we've got, for the first time on the podcast, it is, I'm very proud to say, Chris McCausland making his debut. Welcome, mate. How you doing, mate? It's taken 223 episodes for you to get around to asking me. <laughs> well, the thing was, mate, you got so big at the time I started doing this podcast, and there's some people you just think, well, he's doing all the TV shows. Why would he want to do my little podcast, mate? <laughs> You've had a stonking couple of years, man. You've got, um, we will get onto this later, but your tour starts, is it early next year? Yeah, it starts in January, yeah. And do you know what, mate, as well? I, I mean, me and you, pretty much the same in terms of our... Um, Straight white male, 46 years old. We've been doing comedy the same length of time. Every time the clocks change, mate. Honestly, I have to kind of go and look up what way round it goes and what that means for me. I can never just know in my head, oh, that means I get an extra hour. I always have to go and look it up. I never know when Halloween is. And I know Guy Fawkes Night is on the same night, but Halloween is a bit like Easter. It's a bit of a floater, isn't it? I don't know, like some fucking zombie panel or committee somewhere says it's going to be on a Tuesday this year. You go, no, been- no, no. Halloween's always on the 31st, mate. It's just that everyone does the big parties on the closest Saturdays. So that- uh, well, see, I base <laughs> it on sexy women in cat outfits. I think that that, whatever day I see that, that is Halloween. That's the- you see, this is the one difference between me and you then, mate, is you rely on your eyesight and you're looking out for sexy women in cat outfits. I can't see anything. They're in my head every day of the year. <laughs> your tour how many days is it because i know your last one was an absolute monster i mean it's one of them things that we put two legs of it on sale at the minute and we're still kind of adding into it so i think at the minute it's like 90 odd it'll just kind of like carry on until i suppose we feel like we've been everywhere or people stop buying tickets you know so mm. last one was about 40 odd and i think this one will probably be maybe about the same maybe we try and push it a little bit more so it's like an endurance test sort of thing one of us is going to give up first sort of thing yeah 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 until i'm in an <laughs> empty room on my own and i go i think we're done <laughs> and as a proper club comic as i would call you it definitely ain't gonna be you you just keep going you know, what, I'm going to jump to something now because as a man, you know, that goes out and about and does lots of shows, I've been talking a lot about motorway service stations because I love them, really. I basically slagged off T-Bay services because I don't know if you're a T-Bay fan yourself, but it's got like the farmer's market and all the food and drink is a bit posher. And then Martin Green, who is a board member, the top level member of my Patreon community, he said, as someone who's spent the best part of 20 years trawling the Sheffield, Leeds, Huddersfield up to Scotland, T-Bay was the only sea of tranquility amongst the shite services and piss-soaked toilet steeds between God's country and Aberdeen. 
Now, where do you come down? Are you, do you want your services to be sterile and familiar or do you like them to have a bit of character like T-Bay? What's his name, by the way, your fellow who wrote that? That's from Martin Green. Martin, I can't think of an example of anything quite so mundane as being written with such poetic prowess. <laughs> that was a stunning little bit of prose. It was almost like Irving Welsh, wasn't it? The shitey, yeah. piss-soaked toilet seats <laughs> between God's country and Aberdeen. Do you know what, mate? I'm not up on my brand names and my service stations. It's not something I'm ever aware of when I'm going into them. I'm more interested in what the uh, the concessions are when I get inside. You know what? I, I don't eat McDonald's in my daily life anymore. But when I'm on tour, if we happen to be passing one on the motorway within breakfast hours, then that is considered a little luxury of being on tour. Yeah. So whenever we see a, a McDonald's sign on a services before 11 a.m., I don't care what the brand of the services is. That's the celebration. I think also uh, going to the end of the day is that motorway services that have the golden arches on when it's not open, you know, like the water companies and the, the utilities get fined for like providing poor services or price fixing. I think the service station, like there should be like a, an equivalent of off what that come down on them like a ton of bricks. Oh, my friend's still in such a level of hope into <laughs> people's souls before ripping it out. <laughs> New patrons. So we've got a few new patrons. Remember, the benefit of being part of the Patreon community is that you get it ad-free. Uh, you get it early and you get it with additional content. And that seems to be working out very well. So people seem to be enjoying the extra content. Remember, there was a, what most people think breaking news last week, which I'm able to do now. So go on to Patreon. Just go what most people think or Jeff Norcott. And what we do, we take the names of the new patrons and we give them a little roast based on their names. So we've got a VIP. He's doing all right for himself. Jim Luke. And his name's Jim Luke. I don't know, Chris, if you share with me a slight sort of suspicion of men with two first names. Is that like a thing from the old cowboy age? Like, never play cards with a guy with two first names, goddammit. Well, I think what Jim's done there is I don't think that's his surname. I think that's just how he goes by his first and middle name, almost like a, yeah, yeah. you know, like someone would be called JP or something like that. You know, he's gone for first name and middle name. He hasn't disclosed his surname. Jim. Yeah, yeah. my mates call me Jim. Everyone calls me Jim Luke. Jim Luke. JL. JL. Guys that, oh. I mean, this is not an absolute rule, but guys that tell you their name as a, in initial form, they're quite high up the Belend Richter scale. Oh, massively, mate. All of them pay for hookers and don't tell their wives. <laughs> <laughs> JL, we've got JL and we've got Nigel Foster. He wouldn't go with his initials, would he? NF, you're not doing that. Hey, <laughs> it's NF. Are the NF even still a thing anymore? Because there's been so much since then, isn't there? Britain first, EDL. I'm pretty sure Nigel Foster just never goes, hey, NF. Yeah, it's difficult. I, you know, I get confused between acronyms of kind of right-wing political outfits and energy companies edf <laughs> is that not the electric one that is i mean maybe there was just some sort of merger between the edl and a french energy company <laughs> that would be unlikely but nigel i think is a returning patron so some people they want to be patrons they get booted out and for some reason patron want to keep me working not only to get new patrons but to keep the existing ones i mean i have a sympathy for nigels to be honest mate there's not a lot of them they're a dying breed it's, a, it's an unfashionable name there's no baby nigels is there so I think we need to protect Nigels. I think maybe we need to um, clone them in the future just to keep a couple of them alive for old posterity's sake. Yeah, old Attenborough, he's always talking about fucking sea lions and pangolins. How about we just save the Nigels? Oh, can I, can I say this point, right? I saw an advert. Right, do you remember when we were younger, Chris? So we're the same vintage, literally. There was about four charities that you gave money to when we were kids, right? The Lifeboats, the Salivation, salivation Army? No, <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you have trouble smelling food without soaking your lap in your own saliva? That just sounds like a really bad category on Pornhub. The Salvation Army, what else was it? Marie Curie. There was a few, they were like the big hitters of charities. And then obviously there are more and more charities. And now there's some of them where you, I saw an advert called Save the Pangolins, right? They're these weird sort of like, they look like armadillos a little bit. And I just thought, do you know what? I don't know. And my son was like, can we set up a direct debit? I went, fuck no. I don't mind giving money to charity, but not everything can be saved. If the pangolins haven't evolved to deal with them, fuck them, you know? And if you have to tell me that a pangolin is an animal and not a small guitar-like instrument, <laughs> it's not something that warrants my um, attention, to be honest. Yeah, something that would be played by just a minstrel. And the original minstrels, not before it became politically complicated. The main talking point, we've been talking about funny names for shops and quite a few people have been sending them in. David Domain is our original super patron. He keeps an eye on things from last week's show. He said funny shop names. There's a place in Nemo, a chip shop called Frying Nemo, which I think is excellent. I was also saying, Chris, that I could not work out Joe Biden's age. And every time I say Joe Biden's age, I just make him older. So I think I was up to about 92. He's actually 81. I mean, I don't know about like your family. I don't know what men you've known in your family that have reached that vintage. Could you imagine any of them like having that full on a job at that age, even after the age of 65? Men aren't really at the races, are they? This is the thing with the Yanks in it is they do have presidents that are way too old for the job as messed up as the political system can be in this country at times at least we give them the job or uh, you know it swings around the it because i am at the age with now where i'm like every time there's a prime minister they're younger than me now but he's not a good 81 is he no. there are 80 year olds out there that are more sprightly than he is you know i mean paul mccartney's doing a better job at being 80 he's not a henry fonda 81 is he <laughs> he's a montgomery burns type 81 He's a having regular falls 81. <laughs> it just seems unfair. That's what I think the main thing is. Is like the American people going, right, well, it has to be this guy because he's the guy that keeps Trump out. You go, but look at him. He just looks like he should just be sitting on a porch somewhere just staring. Yeah. You shouldn't be allowed to be the president of the United States of America if there is a greater than 50% statistical chance that you won't be there at the end of the term. That is a really good... That is Because they had... Reagan was... Well, he seemed old. Maybe he wasn't that old. George Bush Sr. was pretty old. I remember him falling asleep in, in a plate of noodles in Japan once. I mean, do you remember that? That was a... I remember Junior choking on a pretzel, wasn't it? But... Oh, yeah. <laughs> but like, I, I think if you go into being president, you've got to go into it with the aim of doing two terms. And so if you're going into it thinking that there is no chance or statistically little chance that you're going to make it eight years with health or life, then it's maybe you should be looking at younger people, you know? Well, maybe, you know those pillboxes that older guys get, the ones with the letters of the days of the week on? If those pillboxes are big enough to fit like a slipper in, like each day of the week, like if you could fit like a fucking moccasin in it. <laughs> <laughs> so a thank you and a fuck you. I'll do the thank you. I took my son to see the new Trolls film at the View Cinema Bedford on Saturday. And I'm going to say, right, there's been three Trolls films, one of the most consistent film trilogies of all time, the Trolls films. Forget what it is, right, just in terms of what it delivers, it's better than The Godfather because <laughs> the first two Trolls films are excellent and the first two Godfather films are excellent. But 
they take the story in a different way. They've come up with backstory, but they haven't multiversed it. I just want to say, you know, me and my son, we sat there, we laughed our asses off. You know, it had some jokes in for the grown-ups, but not too many. Have you noticed that, Chris? You've got a seven-year-old, right? Like, that sometimes the kids' films now, they're sort of playing to the back of the room, like one of those comedy clubs where they have kids and adults there. Like, and you think it should be mainly for the kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my daughter's 10 now, actually. So um, we get to watch a better standard of film. <laughs> but I love a kid's film with a few gags for the adults in. I remember going to watch um, a panto like a, a Liverpool Empire with my daughter and my mum and my dad and that. And they always throw gags in for the adults. And mm. I remember sitting there and they did a joke about spit roasting shepherds. Um. <laughs> I was like, surely that's a bit too much, isn't it? And I remember sat next to my mum and my mum turned to me and the panto went, what does that mean? And I... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a very British thing. I love innuendos so much. Like, I will always laugh if I'm at a pantomime and they'll say, like, you know, if it's Dick Whittington and they'll just say, like, oh, he does he does a very solid dick. His dick is very solid. I just, yeah. I'll always laugh at that. And I wonder, yeah. interesting thing, right? If anyone wants to email in what most people think, uk at gmail.com. I've always thought that that childish love of innuendos is a uniquely British thing. But does that exist in other languages? I don't see it like in American sitcoms as much. They will sort of raise an eyebrow, but we are literally falling about laughing. If there's a couple of hills that look like a pair of tits, that's it, right? And yeah, I think you've got to be particularly um, self-effacing as a nation as well, haven't you? You've got to be very able to laugh at yourselves because a lot of the knob gags are... Um, we're having a go with the little fella, aren't we, in a lot of cases? You can't imagine the French doing that, can you? No, I am not, I am not going to mock my stonker. <laughs> that was a French accent, that mate. Oh, no, it took me a second, I won't lie. <laughs> yeah, the starting point of most knob gags is that it's unimpressive. Thank you to all the well-hung men that go along with that. The fuck you, what's your fuck you, Chris? I'm going to give you two very quickly, actually, because you've reminded me when I went to cinema to watch Scream 6, I do the audio description in the cinema and they gave me, um, I thought it'd be like a little box you can plug your earphones into. They gave me this pair of headphones that were like, like I was running a pirate radio station in the 60s. (laughs) And I'm sat there wearing these bloody headphones, trying to slouch down in the seat so no one behind can like see me wearing these bloody things. And then the film started and the audio description didn't work. And I think this was a view as well. And it was all screaming and running and squelching, as you'd imagine, from a screen film. And I had to leave and go and say to the, the manager, oh, it's, it's not on. He goes and checks and he goes, oh, yeah, it looks like the audio description's um, broke at the minute. Do you want to go back here or do you want your money back? And I said, well, I'll have my money back because I don't know what was happening. And he goes, yeah, well, it is very stabby. <laughs> I thought, well, at least it wasn't him doing it live, you know, or very stabby. Someone's been stabbed, stabby, stabby, stabby. <laughs> but my other fuck you at the minute is I've been unable to log into my Barclays online banking for two weeks because my pin sentry machine is giving me codes that the website won't accept. And that's not the problem. The problem is that in trying to resolve this problem, every time I go back onto the chat, it's another person that restarts the whole rigmarole with me. And you're dealing with people reading off a flowchart and they think you've never used a computer before and you don't understand numbers. Are you typing it in right? Have you pressed the right option? Have you ever <laughs> used PinCent? And you just want to, you, you, oh, honestly, mate, you want to call them all, what can I say on this? Anything. <laughs> well, we spit-roasted a shepherd already, so... <laughs> Fuck you, Barclays. 
It sounds like, you know, like the NHS, where for some reason there isn't an NHS thing that just has your medical record that everyone can fucking access. I would have thought one of the main benefits of a national health service would be that the very least you could do is just have a fucking app that doctors and nurses could do. Right, what's going on with this guy? But every time it's like, right, start from the beginning. It's sort of like, you know, those superhero films where they have to tell their origin stories at the beginning every time just to go, yeah, Yeah. geezer, Bruce Wayne, old man got shot, both parents dead, lights, bats, you know, they have to get you up to speed. We go, yeah, we know that stuff. start the fucking Batman film. We're going to get on now to talking about a first subject, which is uh, Keir Starmer coming under pressure from within the Labour Party. So Keir Starmer, he's had a good run of it, right? How much of that is to do with him? Fuck knows. He was having a good conference and then obviously the awful terrorist attacks in Israel happened. He made a very sort of firm statement of alliance with Israel. And then, you know, in the days after that, he kind of backed this up. And then there was this interview, which is what I want to focus on specifically with Nick Ferrari on LBC, whereby he sort of, I would say he seemed to kind of back the idea that Israel could conduct a siege. And it sort of caused a ruckus in the Labour Party that rolled on for like nine days. He didn't apologise. He still hasn't apologised. He's come up with some bullshit that he was answering the previous question, which has been pointed out online. Have you seen this, Chris? That it's kind of like the two Ronnies thing. The two Ronnies, yeah. Answer to the question that came before. (laughs) Oh, my God, I can't remember who did it. I think it was John Holmes, who's been on the show. John Holmes, uh, it was on their show, The Skewer, on Radio 4. Really, really funny sketch. And then, so what happened is in that time, obviously, is what's happened, what's playing out over there, there are, you know, strong views on that held in the Muslim community in Britain and within the Labour Party. And he ends up with some quite serious rebellion, really. You know, there's this meeting whereby he does a tweet, right? I don't know if you saw this, Chris, where he comes out with a tweet, but it's, it's not just any old tweet, Chris. It's one of the ones where he's written a note in his phone and photographed it. That's that's a big concession. He's like, OK, OK, look, I'll do a tweet. And they're like, but I'll tweet shit. What's a tweet? He's like, all right, I'll do a tweet where I'll do a note and then a screenshot the tweet, which doesn't seem to be a massive concession. Almost like this isn't something I was specifically making public. This is a thought that I just wanted to make to myself. But then later I thought it was so important. Yeah, I did that days ago. <laughs> oh, so, so sorry, I should have put it up. Now, I'm not really casting like a view on what Keir Starmer's stance on Israel should be. I'm talking about what it sort of suggests about where the Labour Party are at, because we've had... A while where, you know, with the by-election wins, it's very much felt like Starmer's machine. And But then you look at the wider Labour Party and go, how much is that true or are the Labour Party just gearing up and desperately want power? And then into that, we had Sadiq. Sadiq's come out and demanded a ceasefire. And, you know, a lot of people pointed out that it would be good if there could be a ceasefire in London. But, you know, Sadiq, he likes to make a stance. And then um, Andy Burnham. It was nice to see Andy Burnham, Chris, because... I just always think that he looks like a friendly ticket tout. You know when he wears his big jackets? (laughs) (laughs) Buy or sell, buy or sell. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, right, like you, I do the news quiz. I often have to kind of engineer political opinions on things, and I'm not massively naturally political, right? So I might say really stupid things when I'm just operating off the cuff, but Andy Burnham, for me, always seems to, like, be pretty sound. What's your take on him? I don't mind him. The truth is, the way he played COVID by becoming king of the North, I mean, fucking hell. I I don't think a political (laughs) operator could have had a better outcome than being compared to one of the most popular characters in Game of Thrones. I mean, let's not forget, he's a fucking scouser that's the mayor of Manchester. I think that in itself is quite an achievement. Yeah, humongous. 
but I just I don't know you know whether or not it's manoeuvring or not I think that a lot of people apparently Andy Burnham does have the shark eyes politically you know he's run for leader before but he's just learned how to be very good at going about it I mean I I really give a lot of weight to the people in politics that come across naturally like normal people and talk to you like a normal person you know he always strikes me that he does that like he's just talking to you he's not he doesn't strike me that he's playing games or he doesn't seem to talk in that over exaggerated political speak that sounds like they're doing kind of um 1990s computer game football commentary where it's all (laughs) broken up into three word sections we should then we can request a ceasefire. <laughs> Rishi's definitely got a bit of that, hasn't he? So I spoke earlier with the Israeli Prime Minister, yeah. Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> Are you telling me that you're not like radically infused about Keir Starmer? I'm not I'm not, mate. No, he's um he could do with advertising himself like one of the Kia cars, couldn't he? You know, he's like the, the new Kia Starmer with extra legroom and efficient ride. <laughs> now available in beige. <laughs> you know, you're so right. He should absolutely just go dependable, yeah. star in a reasonably priced car. Absolutely. Just go all economical. <laughs> economical, hundred thousand mile warranty. Starmer's sort of been acting prime ministerial. This is where, where I wonder whether or not this is like the first example of where he's not played it particularly well because the force has been with him for quite a while now and he's acted in a way that I don't think really acknowledges the true sort of breadth of feeling within the Labour Party, right? He's taken a singular stance because it suits him, you know, because obviously there's the history with the anti-Semitic thing within the Labour Party, so he has mm. to be really strong on that. But... I think he's maybe overplayed it a bit because he's sort of gone full prime ministerial, hasn't he? And I will say this, right? I don't remember Ian Duncan Smith's take on Iraq. Do you? I mean, like, when all that was happening, I think it was Ian Duncan Smith or maybe it was Michael Howard. I don't remember what they said about it, but I think we're going to remember what Starmer's saying about Israel. Do you reckon? Because, I mean, the history repeats, doesn't it? So we, if we're all still alive, there'll be another thing that's similar to this in 25 years. And will people be talking back going... Well, I remember when Keir... Well, maybe they will, because there's a lot more social commentary these days. You know, things live forever, unlike they did in, in the 90s. But there's also a lot of things happening. So you're right, they can live on. But there's also... There's too much to fucking remember as well, is one of the issues. So it's very hard for things to stick in the popular psyche. I suppose that what it might have is an impact on his management of the Labour Party. It's almost been like a kind of a reality check that just because he's got Labour to a position where they're on the brink of power doesn't mean that he gets to do exactly what he wants, perhaps. I mean, why wouldn't you say that a ceasefire is the best option? First of all, I don't think to say that is to in any way undermine the attacks on Israel or the position of Israel. What we've got at the minute is a far less than desirable situation that is creating a humanitarian crisis for a lot of innocent people. Well, I suppose he's got lost in the semantics a bit, hasn't he? Because he doesn't want to back down because it's like he wants to say it's his Labour Party. So he's going pause, they're going ceasefire. To me, this is genuinely the most hubris that he's shown since he's become leader. One is that he didn't need to act that prime ministerial. He's really owned a position on this. He could have just gone like, you know, you know, a bit like COVID in the beginning. We go, look, we will back the prime minister. Just do the fucking cliche. Fantastic Josh Widdicombe impression there. Yeah, I mean, that's as close as I can get, really. (laughs) 
He's gone LBC and he's gone, yeah, fuck it, siege, siege. Like, and then he just hasn't admitted that he fucked up. I think that this could have all been squashed a little bit. I don't know if it will affect him that much in the polls going forward. I don't know the timeline on this, to be honest, in terms of when he said what, in terms of where we've been at with the situation over there. But it has been a very, very changing situation, hasn't it? And I think it's fine to admit that you've changed your mind or you've changed your stance and... Sometimes politicians need to um, appreciate that it's fine to do that. And not all the time you're going to be accused of, well, you probably will be by the opposition of flip-flopping and things like that. But I think the great British public appreciate that you are able to assess changing situations and change your mind, work on this is what the situation is at the minute, this is where we're moving. And maybe what I said two weeks ago isn't really the best thing to be said now. But then is he worried that the right-wing press would go, flip-flop, Starmer, they'll just have like his face on a pair of flip-flops. On one side, it'll be smiling, the other side, it'll be frowning. Flip-flop, Keir, crushed by militant factions within the Labour Party. <laughs> what most people think. So sort of second big political story. Well, it's a big political story for me because I love hammering the SNP. But we've heard a lot about Rishi not handing over his phone to the COVID inquiry and about Boris's phone. But it turns out that, well, the Scottish government at that time hasn't released any of its WhatsApps, right? Any. None of the private messages by Sturgeon, Hamza Yusuf have made their way to the inquiry, which I think is just, it just kind of shows the similarities in a way between the Tories and the SNP. You know, just not like ideologically, but just being in power means that you're accountable. I mean, more to the point, Chris, I suppose, can you imagine what she was saying in those WhatsApps? It was, it was very angry. I love the level of hypocrisy that is apparent and visible to everybody. The very, very self-righteous Nicholas Sturgeon, who has done nothing but bash Boris Johnson and the Tories for lack of transparency and the way that they handled COVID. For now, them to be on the receiving end of alleged financial irregularities while they're on holiday in their motorhome and deleting their WhatsApp accounts and all of their message. It makes me laugh so much that there is this level of shittery gone on. <laughs> There's a lot of shithousery in the SNP. <laughs> but forgetting that, like there was the Alex Salmond inquiry as well. And that there was loads of like, she was hammered by the people that cross-examined her there. Jamie Dawson QC, the Scottish counsel to the inquiry, he said that there were suggestions of messages have been manually deleted manually deleted now let's just speculate for fun chris how many different like insult names would they have had on that group for boris johnson for the tories i would say that what we're talking about is 90 percent insults that fat fucking albino bastard like i bet it went really deep calls himself the big dog that fat blueberry saint bernard cunt <laughs> It would have been like all the names of the world. They would have just been scrolling through it and then they would have been then phoning each other going, look, I don't want anything on record anymore because I've just looked through it. I would say 90% of what we said on WhatsApp during COVID was either pretty hateful stuff about Boris or some quasi-racist stuff about the English and frequently murderous things about the Tories generally. It beggars believe. I mean, but first of all, if it was all just about Boris, then I think they'd have released it because I think it would have got a laugh out of everybody. It, it's you know, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's not like Boris is going to suddenly get sympathy from the nation, is it? Oh, look what the SNP said about him. If they were good jokes, I think you're right. It wouldn't be like that they insulted him, but be were the jokes any good? We probably let them keep the motor home. <laughs> I think there's probably been quite a lot of anti-English sentiment 
about them lot down there in far more coarse terms, you know, that they've thought, we can't let any of this get out. <laughs> Honestly, I reckon it's absolute fucking dynamite. I mean, one thing I do think is since this COVID inquiry started and we've seen WhatsApp messages and some really embarrassing moments, which I spoke about in the breaking news episode last week, is that how boring must those political WhatsApp groups be since COVID inquiry started? Because I guess they thought it was like the Wild West. Do you know what I mean? It's a free-for-all. We can slag off colleagues. We can have these breakaway groups. I bet they've sort of gone from slagging off everybody to being like Jane Austen characters just having tea at the rectory. Oh, hello, Mr. Sunak. Good morning. Yes, the reports that you requested will be ready later. Well, thank you very much, Sue. That was very kind of you. Isn't it great working in such a committed and motivated team? <laughs> Do you think it's morally okay for people to give up their WhatsApps? Because like, bear in mind, you have certain things in government that are on record and you know that from the start. And they were saying these things and communicating in this way without the knowledge that it would one day be seen as public. Do you think it's fair? Because I, I guess as comics, we all know how quickly we could get cancelled if our WhatsApp was made public. It's difficult, isn't it? Because... Um... It's a massively digitally changing world. Like, look at Trump, for example, and we mock him to hell and back, really, but he is the first social media president, isn't he? Mm. And so there is an aspect of his job that he's had to deal with that other presidents haven't. That level of exposure, that openness to every thought that he has being out there. And I know he puts them out there, but it's still uncharted territory, if you know what I mean, that he has been um, absolutely making a hash of right from day one. With these WhatsApp messages, they are part of running government. And whether they accepted or understood that or appreciated that when they were messaging within them, they are part of the process of running government these days. And they are, unfortunately, the uh, the sacrificial lambs that have learned this during the process of using it, you know, nobody sat them down beforehand and gave them the, the iTunes terms and conditions, you know, at any point, these WhatsApp messages may be released to the journalists, <laughs> to the national press, you know, they haven't had any of that, but it is a changing time. And they are the people that are, are kind of figuring out how that works while they're doing it. So there is a little bit of sympathy for that, but also just funny, isn't it? It's the definition of funny, something bad happening to someone else. And if you talk about something really bad, I couldn't go much worse then your WhatsApp's being revealed. And you're right, it's like if it was there in the terms and conditions, just be aware that this Photoshop of Boris's head onto a baby's body and Penny Morden in a dominatrix, I'm just spitballing off the top of my head. Okay, just a quick hype from me and Chris here. I've got some big venues in my spring leg, which are Wimbledon Theatre, the Pièce de Résistance, I think at the end of April, doing Stevenage, the Gordon Craig Theatre, that one's selling pretty well. South End, again, you know, a big sort of 650-seater room, that's getting, I think that's about 80% sold. Ipswich is another big room, so it'd be great to see you there. And of course, Aberdeen. Aberdeen, in the autumn leg, is selling exactly how it has done for the last three legs, which gives me a good chance to speak to Chris, because we always ask touring comics, Where's your place, Chris, that no matter what you do, however great the show was there last time, that it's just a fucking, like, it drags its heels. It's a slow, it's, I was going to say the slow kid at sports day, but slow has another meaning. The non-pacey child at sports day. Torquay. Torquay. What's gone wrong there? 
Yeah, Torquay, just, you know, a couple of people buy tickets a week. And I've convinced myself it's because there's loads of holiday homes. Because <laughs> we have to, don't we? We have to come up with a reason for it. Yeah, there's too many holiday homes. There's not enough people that just live there, living their lives, you see. That's what I'm telling myself. But do you know what my equivalent is for Aberdeen? That It's a very transient community because of the oil industry. So probably the people that saw me last time don't even live there anymore because that's the only explanation that makes sense to me. I think a f- funny thing is as well was like, how quickly you just said Torquay. Every comic we asked that to, they don't need to rack their brains at all. It's like a burning resentment. So if, if you live in Torquay, go and check out Chris. What, what's the tour called? The tour's called Yonks. Like, I haven't seen you in Yonks. Been doing it for Yonks. It's a fun word and it means nothing really. And it's just one of them things, mate, where I had to name the tour before I'd written it. <laughs> <laughs> what's yours called? This tour is cool. Oh, fuck. You put me on the spot there. I can't remember. A basic bloke. I mean, I really went deep on that one, Chris. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because, I mean, I talk about this in the show, but there was a woman that saw it in Edinburgh that messaged me afterwards and said, you know, it's good, but it was a bit blokey. You think, look, I gave you a fucking trigger warning (laughs) in the title. Let's move on and have a bit of a comedy chat. What was interesting, I think, we spoke a bit about the overlaps between us age-wise. We were club comedians that had done it for a while. We were also, the first time we did Live at the Apollo, we were on the same series. And I remember coming down to watch the record that you were on as like a bit of prep and you absolutely smashed it. You were on with Gary Delaney and you, you had a great gig. And I thought it was really interesting, you know, like, again, Gary Delaney, similar in a way. The time that we did on the circuit, how, how now all these opportunities are coming, how valuable is that to you? Hugely, mate. I think, you know, circuit miles and playing every room up and down the country and every type of room on every night of the week doesn't have add strings to your bow, you know. And when you're doing these new environments on the telly, whether it's panel shows or, you know, a lot of improvisation and things like that, it sounds really business like it, but the transferable skills you don't appreciate until you're in them situations. You think, oh, I've never done that before. But then it, it, it becomes apparent that that experience of, Playing difficult rooms, of improvising with drunken audiences, of dying on your ass in dead-end towns, it all works out because a lot of the time on the telly as well, you're doing new material because you're doing things that are coming out your Mm. head as you're thinking of them. Not everything will work. You need to be able to ride the wave of laughter when things are going well on a TV show and also kind of just quickly pick yourself up when you say something that's not funny in the slightest. <laughs> oh, my God. Like that, I can't really describe that. I haven't done loads of panel shows, but that feeling where you say something that just shits the bed, it's like, I can't really describe it. It's like being at a party and there's a group of you standing around in the semicircle and the conversation is flowing, flowing, everyone's loving it, and yeah. then you just say something off colour and then... It's like you're in the sin bin, you know, like an ice hockey where you've just got to sit out about 10 minutes and you just, you go to the bad place. Oh, you feel a sweat on the back of your neck, don't you? <laughs> it's horrible. I mean, you talk about transferable skills, but I mean, you've done Wilty, would I lie to you? How many times have you done that now? Five. Five Wilties, right? Now, what transferable skill, because I've done it once, right? And I've experienced this once. What transferable skill can prepare you for Lee Mack coming at you with that cross-examination that he does? Because he's so fucking quick. He's incredibly quick. But the thing is, is that like, I always found that like, you've been at a gig before and you've had to follow someone who who has absolutely smashed it. Mm. And you've probably had to raise your game more than you probably would have if you'd have followed somebody that just did all right. Yeah, yeah. And I find that when you're sat opposite Lee and he is ultra quick it makes you faster it makes you quicker and um 
you bring yourself up as close to his level as you're able to get yourself. But the thing is, is that, I mean, for people listening at home, when they watch these TV shows and they see us all on them and they go, I mean, how can you be that funny for half an hour? It's because you film for two and a half hours. Yeah, and yeah. maybe there's a good hour and a half in that, but there's also an hour of stuff that doesn't work and there's stories that hit dead ends and there's act outs that, that don't get the laugh they should have got. And that's why you film longer so that these bits, not everything makes it in. And that's what I mean. You kind of got to, when something doesn't go as funny as you'd hoped it would be, you kind of just pick yourself up and go again, you know, because it'll all look good on the telly then when they pick the good bits. You're right. Like you think to yourself, well, they wouldn't put it in if it wasn't funny. Unless you go on a riff that's not funny and someone tops it and gets a round yeah, of applause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at which point I just feel like, right, I'm going to drop so many C-bombs to make this fucking unusable as possible. <laughs> it's awful. Cause, and the thing is, is, is someone like Lee Mack is, is so talented that there's every chance that if you've gone on a rambling thing without a punchline, he's thought of about seven. My fear of doing If I Got News For You the very first time I did it wasn't really whether I could be funny or not. My fear of that was, as I said to you, I'm not naturally politically opinionated. I was going to be on Paul's team and I thought, what if I say something that's really, really stupid and Ian Hislop rips it apart in a way that's so funny that it has to stay in the edit. And, then, <laughs> <laughs> and as it turns out, Ian Islop is one of the sweetest, most lovely guys you could ever work with. He's amazing, you know. But that was my fear, is being stupid, but then the result being that funny that it had to stay in. <laughs> what you don't want to go is Ian Hislop dismantles. You don't want the clip to have that sort yeah. of title. Yeah. I think he's very friendly towards comics. I think it's uh, politicians where he saves all that for. I mean, with what I lie to you, I think that there's a lot of transferable skills just in the way that you, when it's on you, when it's your story, if it's a truth, you know what the truth is because it's your truth. They mm. might go, we like these five stories from everything you've told us. And you don't know which one you're going to get, but you know it's going to be one of them five stories. You can prepare how you're going to tell them. You can prepare mm. little lines you're going to drop in, gags that you might drop in if you get asked the right question. And if it's a lie... You don't know what it is. You don't know what it's going to be. But we've all developed improvisation skills over the years on the circuit, dealing with audiences and things like that, haven't we? So all of that all feeds into making you a better performer on that show, I think. So you say that, like you improvise around the lie. The lie that I got, I halfway through it, forgot that it was a lie and then thought I was telling the truth because the lie they gave me was actually quite similar to an experience I'd had teaching, but then I forgot that the reason they'd probably given me that lie was because I could use my experience. So I genuinely got confused as to what the fuck I was doing. And I, I stood up doing an act out in front of the audience, standing in front of Rob Brydon thinking, I can't remember what I'm supposed to be doing here. Am I telling the story as it was? I, I remember that mental process was going. And then I just finished a little act out I was doing far too early. And I remember I just went back to sit down. It was really quiet. And Rob Brydon charitably started a round of applause just to cover the sound of my fucking footsteps going back to the seat. <laughs> okay, so Chris McCausland, just remind us again, the tour is called... The tour is called Yonks. It starts in January, runs till um, Christmas next year and beyond. I finish next year at the Hammersmith Apollo. Ooh. So please buy tickets for that. Don't let that be the one where I go, I think the tour's done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> buy tickets for that unless you live in Torquay. If you live in Torquay, definitely don't plan a weekend away because he needs to sell um, Torquay as well as that. But look, I know you're smashing it all over, mate, selling loads of tickets everywhere. So get those tickets while you can. And Chris McCausland, thank you so much for being on What Most People Think. Oh, cheers for having us, mate. What most people think.